Our gracious God, thank you for your word to us. Now, as we've sung, we pray, speak to us from your word, that we may not only understand it, but believe it and live under it for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As you stroll around the markets of Bangkok, or as I did recently, I notice a sign that I've seen a few times there before, as some of the products are advertised, genuine fake. (laughs) Genuine fake. At least they're honest. Genuine fake. Uh, Last year, I was uh, teaching in Pakistan, and I bought some trousers, very cheap. And I said, oh, are these the real thing from America? Oh, yes, sir, of course. Well, I knew they wouldn't. At least in Bangkok, they're honest. I bought a genuine fake pair of trousers. Well, I mean, they're real trousers, but they're not going to last very long, let me tell you. It is dangerous to buy products from unauthorized dealers. They don't really work. You know, why would you buy a watch from a street stall in any city of the world? It's not going to last very long, and if it breaks down, you've probably got no guarantee, no way of getting it fixed to work. That is, if you buy something, a product, from a a dubious dealer, well, it's not going to be a very reliable product, most likely. And I'm very sceptical, to be honest, when I buy these things. I don't believe the shopkeepers when they tell me this is the real product. I'm I'm a cynic when it comes to shopping. Maybe we need to be careful spiritually as well. In a way... The issue that's uh, bubbling over in the churches in Galatia is this accusation or allegation against Paul the Apostle that somehow the message that he is peddling, they would say, is a dubious product, a fake, not even a genuine fake, probably. And they're warning the Galatian churches that probably Paul himself has been instrumental in planting, that actually his message, his gospel, is not the real deal. And that in fact they have got a fuller, better, maybe more sophisticated message or gospel. And so what we find in this letter is a defense by Paul, in part. And that's what we come to today with a with a biographical testimony of defense of the gospel that Paul preaches. Paul's reply in this section is dealing with his own personal history, how he came to this gospel and why. A bit later, when you get into chapter 3 and 4, he will then argue the theology of this gospel, and in the later chapters, deal with the ethical, moral consequences of it. But at this point, it's more of a biographical defense that will lead into a statement more about the theology of it. But even now, and you would have seen last week, there are hints and glimpses of the theological significance of what is going on here. In some ways, we may read these verses today as simply a sort of testimony, a biography of some part of Paul's life. But it's not just a biography. It is framed for this particular reason, to defend the gospel that he's preaching. And this charge, as you would have 
glimpsed last week as well, that the gospel is a fake, needs some form of biographical defense before the theological and then the moral defense of this gospel. We could say that a way of thinking about today's passage is under the heading of pleasing God, because that idea both begins and ends today's section. So chapter 1, verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Well, if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then at the end of this passage, as we'll see in a few minutes, comes to the statement about glorifying God. Paul is arguing here with rhetorical questions that he is not a man-pleaser, that he's not about the job of trying to please human beings. He is here to please God, and that ultimately will lead to glorifying God at the end of the chapter. Well, I must say, as a preacher and pastor, it is very easy to be drawn into the idolatry of being a person pleaser. The trouble is you can never please everyone, and especially in a church. So my philosophy was don't please anyone. No, not quite. Pleasing God is the ultimate thing. And it may be that these false teachers who are trying to distort the message of Paul and lead away from him, the Galatian churches, maybe they're saying something about Paul as being a man-pleaser, a human-pleaser, that he's not actually pleasing God, that his message doesn't please God, that he's somehow, that Paul has changed the truth in a way to please human beings. Hard to know exactly their allegations sometimes, because as we read any epistle in the New Testament, we're sort of getting half the conversation, a bit like when you're on the train and you're hearing someone on their phone speak loudly, which happens fairly frequently, you only hear half the conversation. So here we're, we're not exactly sure every detail of what they're speaking about Paul, but it may be that, oh, Paul, he's just about trying to please human beings. He doesn't please God. Our message pleases God. And Paul is saying, in fact, that the reverse is true. We might think, well, how, how would the message that Paul preaches, that we read in the New Testament, that I take it most of us at least have grasped and believe in, why, why would that be uh, uh, regarded as human pleasing? Because the gospel, though it's great news and good news, in some ways does offend us. Well, it offends our fallen nature at least. Because the gospel tells us we can't save ourselves. We cannot do it by our law-keeping, our religious piety, by our moral virtue or anything else. In some ways, the gospel is offensive. Well, at best, it's humbling. That's the message that Paul preaches. It humbles, though, and it offends us. In some ways, the gospel is not really a man-pleasing gospel. But it is a God-pleasing gospel, as we'll come to towards the end. Paul, though, through this, is drawing the Galatians' attention not really to himself, but to God, so that they please God and that they glorify God. 
Remember, the Galatian church to whom he writes, he's not writing directly to the false teachers. He's writing to those who are vulnerable to the influence of the false teachers. He loves them. In this passage, he still calls them brothers and sisters. So there's a warmth of his approach, and he's trying to strengthen them, to steel them against being misled, that they understand deeply so that they stand firm in the truth. He's trying to strengthen their resolve in a way. In some ways, actually, the, the wrong teachers, the heretics, they may be our people-pleasers. And if they are people-pleasers, then maybe they are flattering the church and that way trying to distort them. We know that happens in other places in the early church. As Paul speaks to Timothy later in his life, he speaks about beware of those who flatter people and thus mislead them to error. And notice too how Paul says in verse 10, am I trying to please man or if I were still trying to please man? The little word still. What Paul is hinting at, and it'll come out in the next paragraph more clearly, is that before Paul was a Christian, he was pleasing man. He was pleasing humans. He says, am I still trying to please man? No. So in that little word, we are getting the first hint of the big change in Paul's life. He used to be a man pleaser, preaching the Jewish religious pharisaical law, but now he's a God pleaser. And that's the contrast that's going to become clearer in the verses that follow. And also, of course, Paul is very aware you cannot serve two masters. You cannot live to please people and live to please God. And so by framing this debate in that way, he's drawing the Galatians' attention to God. Galatian church, you please God. Don't worry about people. Don't please people. Don't please me. Please God. He's drawing them higher, in fact, to the truth in this argument. Well, Paul's basic claim comes in the first uh, verses of the next paragraph. I would have you know, brothers and sisters, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the key. That's the key claim. The gospel that Paul preaches is not man's gospel. It's not man's message. It's not a made-up message by humanity. C.S. Lewis said something like, when you look at Christianity... How could any human dream that up? It must come from God. Maybe Paul hasn't expressed it quite like that. But what he's saying here is that the message that he preaches, that he preached to the Galatians, that they believed, that they are under pressure to give up and move away from, that is a message that came to Paul from God, directly. He didn't get taught it by another person. He didn't get trained in some long tradition of this message either. It has come to him by God directly. And as we know, on the road to Damascus, when he had that life-changing vision and experience that set him in a different direction. Paul calls it revelation. That is, this message that Paul has been preaching to the Galatian churches is not a concoction 
by some human being, but as something that has been revealed, shown, or exposed to Paul by Christ. He calls it a revelation of Jesus Christ. And probably there's two things in that little expression. It's a revelation that is that Jesus has given him. After all, on the road to Damascus, he saw Christ and heard him. But it's also about Christ. The gospel is Christ. It is a Jesus-centered gospel that has been revealed, shown, exposed to Paul on that road. It came to him directly from God. And you can see then how Paul is building his argument of defense. The message that Paul has preached is God's message. Paul's gospel is God's gospel. It's not a human message. It's not a made-up message. It is directly from God. But then Paul has to explain more of his biography to defend that claim. That's the basic claim in verses 11 and 12. But then he goes on to speak about when he, before he was a Christian, his conversion, and then the years immediately after his conversion through the rest of this uh, paragraph. Before he was a Christian, he says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, to to an extreme measure is the word, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was a Pharisee. They are very legalistic, or were. Rules and regulations mattered to them. And Paul was an ardent, fiery, and zealous Pharisee. But what does he call that? The traditions of my fathers. That is, it's human. It's not from God. He was an ardent Judaizer. He loved the law. He proclaimed the law. He fiercely opposed the church because it rejected that tradition. But it was a tradition, a tradition of the fathers. It went back a few centuries, perhaps. We're not sure quite the origins of the Pharisee movement, but it was old by Paul's time. But it's a tradition. It's human. That's all. You've heard about this. It's well known. So he's not making up a biography here. Paul's conversion story was widely known through the early church as it is to this day. And Paul's own advance in Judaism is also important. Paul knows Judaism, and it's clear that the false teachers in Galatia seem to be trying to draw the Galatian church in some ways back into or into a Judaistic way of thinking. Paul knows that. He's been part of that before he was converted. And what he's saying here by going back to his conversion is that that message of Judaism or Judaizing Christianity is totally incompatible with the gospel that Paul himself has received from Christ on the road to Damascus. He understands Judaism well. That's part of his defense. Well, then he moves on then to his conversion. Notice the change here. In verse 13 and 14, I persecuted, I was advancing, etc. But, 
Verse 15. When he, that is God, who set me apart, God set him apart before he was born, and God called him by his grace, and God was pleased to reveal the subject changes from Paul, I, to God. God set him apart, God called him, and God was pleased to reveal to him. That's the conversion change for Paul reflecting on the road to Damascus. And maybe he uses those words carefully. God set me apart. You see, the Pharisees thought that they were set apart for keeping the law. But God, Paul says, has set me apart, a former Pharisee. Why? How? For what purpose? For preaching a different message from the Pharisees. God who set me apart before I was born. An echo, perhaps, of Jeremiah, which is why we have the Old Testament reading. Before he was born in the mother's womb, God had called him to be a prophet. Maybe Paul is using that language consciously or unconsciously, that God, even before he was born, had actually set him apart and thus called him by grace. Notice how he uses that term. He, does, he could have just said, and God called me to mission. He called me by his grace, not by law, not by legalism, not by keeping every little bit of the law. That was the pharisaical message. But he called me by his grace. The key theme through this letter to the Galatians. Paul, the Pharisee, zealous to keep the law, saved by grace. What a change. And it's God's doing. It wasn't a human intervention. Paul wasn't walking along the road to Damascus and he suddenly met two missionaries who stopped him and started talking to him. He's just come from trying to kill them. And he's heading to Damascus precisely to do the same, to kill the Christians or throw them in prison. He's not converted by any human hand. Now, there's a uniqueness well, not uniqueness, but a, a particularity about that. Many of us have become Christians through human speaking. And Paul himself, of course, is a speaker of the gospel that others become Christian. But for Paul himself, directly from God. And that's what happened on the road to Damascus, which, of course, we can read about three times, actually, in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. So Paul is showing here that from his pre-Christian life, and his conversion on the road to Damascus, it was God's doing. God set me apart. God called me. God revealed this gospel to me in verse uh, 16. And he revealed his son to me. Just as he earlier said, revealing Christ revealed his son. It's all about Jesus. And the purpose, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul's mission to Galatia on his first missionary journey, the people to whom he's now writing later, that was part of his conversion and calling. It's not a later thing. He's not sent by Christians particularly. He's really sent by God, ultimately. It is all from God. But Paul's argument is not yet complete. Now he thinks about the years after he became a Christian. From verse 17. Nor, uh, nor did I, uh, oh, at the end of verse 16, I should say. 
I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now, don't take that out of context, because you could apply it to every aspect of your life. I'm never going to consult with anyone about anything. Paul is simply saying, for him, when he became a Christian, yes, he met with Ananias uh, in, in Damascus, but by way of understanding the message of the gospel and his calling to proclaim it, he didn't consult with anyone. He didn't go to Ananias or jump into the, you know, the institutes of religion by some proto-Calvin or something like that to find out, have I got this right? What should I be speaking? It has come to him directly from God, is what he says. So I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Paul has been made an apostle on the road to Damascus. He's seen the risen Christ, is probably the New Testament qualification for being an apostle. He didn't race up to Jerusalem and introduce himself to Peter and others then, but rather, he says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There's a lot of historical uh, scholarship and debate exactly about the time frames of all of this, but in general, it seems that Arabia was not that far away. Don't think Paul's racing off to Mecca. Uh, he's not racing down into Africa. Arabia seemed to come at this point almost to Damascus's door. Later on, Paul has to flee under Aratus, who is a leader of the Nabataeans, including Damascus and Arabia. So he may not have been far away from Damascus at this particular point. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 11. And maybe he's in Arabia for two or three years, in fact. It's not just a week's holiday. Many people think Paul goes away for a sort of long, silent retreat. I've just become a convert. Now I'm going to sit in the desert on top of a tree or something and think about what I'm going to do. He's just said, I'm converted to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. So most likely, the way the sentences flow, he goes to Arabia to what? Proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles straight away. Well, within a few days or weeks, probably. Converted into Damascus, leaves Damascus and immediately starts his gospel ministry. We know nothing more about that ministry to Arabia. Around Damascus, a bit further across into maybe what is Jordan today or Iraq, something like this. Not exactly sure the geography. But his purpose of being saved and called is to proclaim and it seems that he immediately does that. And here's the point. This is why he says it. That from the very beginning, the message that I have preached, which is the same message to you Galatians, was preached without human interference or influence or consultation, directly from God on the road to Damascus, and out I go to proclaim it. It is God's message. It is God's gospel. And I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Paul is not dependent on any man for the message that he preached. And even when he did go to Jerusalem, it was but for a short time. In verse 18, he says, then after three years, presumably that's in mission and ministry in Arabia or Damascus, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas, that is Peter, 
and remained with him 15 days, that is, two weeks, a fortnight. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, who, in fact, wasn't a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. We don't know why he didn't meet other apostles. Maybe some were away, preaching and in ministry. Maybe it wasn't his interest to try and see them all. But he was only there for two weeks. It's after three years, or at least in the third year of his ministry after his conversion, and he only met two apostles. And the way he talks about meeting James is as if he sort of bumped into James almost unintentionally. It is hardly likely that that visit, that short visit to Jerusalem, is where Paul gets his gospel from. As though he goes to consult Peter and say, Peter, what should I be saying? That doesn't seem to be the point at all in such a short visit after three years of what is most likely ministry. So Paul says in verse 19, uh, sorry, verse 20, and what I'm writing to you, I don't lie. This is an oath he's making. He is swearing the truth here. Then, there was the word then or next in verse 18. Here it is again in verse 21. Paul is being accurate in what he says. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. We read in Acts 9 how Paul is taken to Caesarea and then he's put on a ship to Tarsus, his home city, where he was born in south-central um, uh, modern Turkey, in fact, in Acts 9, after his conversion. Acts doesn't mention the Arabia years or anything like that. Luke just picks out the key things that Luke is interested in. Paul has other things that serve his purpose here. So trying to match the two accounts is not too hard, but they don't exactly say the same uh, thing. But this is where, this is the same visit as Acts 9. In the years from 25 to 72 AD, Syria and Cilicia, that is north of Israel and into southern Turkey, were one unified administrative district under the Roman Empire. In 72, Vespasian separated them again. Paul's gone to his home city, Tarsus, but presumably around Cilicia and Syria, what's he doing for 14 or 11 to 14 years? Preaching the gospel, no doubt. Later in Galatians, you'll see that it's after, he says after 14 years. Whether it's after 14 years after his conversion or after 14 years in Syria and Cilicia, next week's preacher can solve that for you. But Paul is again preaching. Same message. God's message is what he's saying here. So Paul was only in Jerusalem a short time. He immediately goes off and does other ministry. And now he reflects on his relationship with the church in Judea. That's around Jerusalem. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They knew about him. He says that in verse 23. They're only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. But Paul didn't go visiting those churches, it seems. Two weeks in Jerusalem and off he goes, outside Judea. That's the only relationship he has with Judea, just that short, brief visit to Jerusalem. They know his reputation, but they don't know him personally. And the key to this, the end of the chapter, and they glorified God, because of me. 
You see, what Paul is saying and implying there is that the Judean Christians around Jerusalem, with whom Paul had no personal contact, no influence, no involvement in their church life in these early years, they glorified God because of me. That is, their gospel, what they believed, was the same as what Paul was preaching. They knew that. They didn't know Paul personally. And therefore, what Paul is saying here is that the gospel that's come out of Jerusalem by other apostles and the gospel that Paul has received and preached for some years separately are the same gospel. Therefore, they both come from God. Paul is trying to show his own independence from the Jerusalem church, that his gospel has come directly from God, but it's the same gospel, the same gospel message. There's no sort of human tinkering going on here. There's no underhanded plots behind all this. This is God's revealed gospel being preached by Paul, by the Judean Christians as well. And therefore, the implication is, that it is those who are in Galatia with, who are Judaizing, that is trying to draw the Galatian church into Jewish ways of behavior, it is they who are deviant. It is they who've got the wrong message. Not Paul and not the Jerusalem church. So God is glorified at the end of the chapter by those who've received God's glorious gospel of grace. Because God's gospel, that is not man's gospel, God's gospel is for God's glory. And Paul is demonstrating here that the gospel he's preached is God's, and we see that because God is glorified. God's gospel glorifies God. Man's gospel, if, if gospel's the right word, which it isn't, but a man's gospel glorifies man. God's gospel, Paul's gospel, the, Ju- the Jerusalem church gospel, That glorifies God. So what Paul is saying here is that the gospel he preaches, God's gospel, is not a human invention. It's not about laws and rules and regulations. He'll say more of that in chapters 3 and 4. It's not about our ability or zeal to try and live righteous lives and attain a moral standard. It's not about something for us to boast in. Because ultimately the gospel is not man-pleasing. It is God-pleasing or God-glorifying. And what Paul is showing then here about this glorious gospel of God is that only God's gospel is powerful to convert. Paul's reflected on his own uh, testimony here. Paul on the road to Damascus, astonishingly converted by God directly and God's gospel. And we may not have been converted so dramatically, but we are Christian. We may even have come out of Christian families, of course, and never known a time of not believing. But if we are believers, it is because of God, not because of us. We are Christian because of God's activity, not our cleverness, not our religious piety, not our personal preference. We are Christian because of God. So we cannot rely on reaching righteousness by rules, but rather we have been grabbed by God's gospel grace. That's the contrast in this letter. 
We haven't reached out to grasp God's gospel grace, but God has grabbed us with his gospel grace. And unlike the false teaching of Galatia, they were advocating to rely on religious rules and regulations for righteousness. But Paul is saying no, fundamentally opposed. Are you grabbed by God's gospel grace? But even more than that, as Paul has begun to hint here and as the letter will develop later, it is only God's gospel, not only that can convert, but to transform into godliness. Paul's change from being a persecutor to being a godly leader of the church of God. Just hinted at here, maybe here is the big focus on conversion, but part of the argument of the letter will develop. It's also about the transformation of a person. So, for example, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. There's no fruit of the Spirit. There's no power to transform that comes out of a heretic's gospel. That's all about human attempts to rely on rules and regulations. So, in conclusion, this is why the gospel is worth defending. We defend it not because it's weak, but we defend it because it's true. There are some things in life that are matters of opinion, but the gospel is not that. So often we are misled by a sort of relativistic, pluralistic world that says, well, it's okay for you to have your opinion and I'll have mine. But what would happen if my opinion said that 2 plus 2 equals 5? I'd be a bit stuck in all my daily transactions, wouldn't I? That is, there's a difference between opinion and truth. And the gospel is true. It is not a matter for opinion. And Paul is defending it with everything he has, not because the gospel is weak and needs human defenders, but because it's so true and so brilliant, and so important. That's why Paul is so ardent for this gospel of God. It's why Paul goes to such lengths in this letter and elsewhere in the New Testament to defend it in his writing, in his prayers, in his ministry, and with his life. And it's why in last week's passage, he even curses those who pervert the gospel. Because this is the truth, and it matters eternally. The false gospels that we have today are legion. There are many. They may not be exactly the type of false gospel that the false teachers in Galatia were preaching. But the ones in our world today are just as lethal and dangerous. The gospels of prosperity, for example. The gospel of pluralism, that Christ is in every religion, that we're all worshipping the same God, for example. The Gospels that are rational, that dismiss the miracles and the supernatural. And on and on it will go. Gospels that are no Gospels, of course, that are human inventions, human flattery, man-pleasing. But God's glorious Gospel, the true one, is God-pleasing, not man-pleasing. 
So make sure that the gospel that you are grasping is the true one. That it doesn't come from some disreputable dealer on the street with a hidden sign that says genuine fake. Make sure that the gospel that you trust in and rely upon, that you embrace, that you love and proclaim, is God's gospel. Because God's gospel is glorious grace. And it's true. And the reason why we must keep grasping it is to glorify that great God. Because God's gospel is for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for the glorious gospel of grace that has grabbed and grasped us. And we pray that we may hold fast to it so that in our lives and in the lives of others around us, we may glorify you and not seek to please ourselves or others. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.